I'm Dimity, for those who haven't met yet. Um, so we're going on a bit of a scavenger hunt this morning in the Bible. We've got three different verses. Um, Ecclesiastes 2, 1 to 11, and then 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5, and then 6, verse 17 as well. So I don't know if you want to stick your fingers in the Bible a bit further ahead. Um, I've got bookmarks. <laughs> All right. I said to myself, go ahead. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it is madness. And about pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind the pull of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards and parks for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, sorry, and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a, a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all, uh, for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. All right, now we're heading over to the next one in 1 Timothy. Um, 4 verses 1 to 5. <clears throat> now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared, they forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. Okay, and the next one's even shorter, which is 1 Timothy verses, sorry, chapter 6, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Farther still existed a star without strife, where none remembered life's trials or its joys. What its people had gained from ease, they lost to apathy. This quote comes from my favorite video game. And I'll give you points if you can tell me its name after the service. 
But the context of this quote, uh, for probably the many of you who don't know, uh, is that the person speaking this line has journeyed to all the planets in the known universe where there is life to find the answer to the question, what gives life meaning? And the heartbreaking thing is that they fall into despair because either by war or disease or even insurmountable knowledge, each civilization is wiped out, rendering their lives meaningless. And as they recount their findings to you, they tell you of this place where its people had managed to eliminate all strife from their lives. And because life became easy, and all they knew were the things that made them feel good in life, all that good became just average. They became indifferent. Now, one thing I've particularly enjoyed about these kinds of video games is the commentary that they make on our society, where they pick an aspect of our daily lives and turn it up to the extreme version of it. You see, in the face of strife, we seek ease, comfort, and joy. We seek pleasure, attempting to treat it like a soothing balm on the burns of life we've been hit with. Turning to Netflix, to alcohol, to video games, to sex, to success. Some of us chase that good feeling so that our struggles feel more distant. And others for a greater sense of purpose. But every time, just like every other addict to pleasure, finding it not enough. Why is pleasure our sought-after solution? Why do we fill our lives with the constant pursuit of pleasure? Is this pursuit just to avoid pain? Or are we searching for a greater pleasure? If you haven't met me before, my name is Jared. I'm one of the student ministers here. And we've just entered into the second part of our summer series. For the past three weeks, we've asked ourselves the question, is God true? Is God good? And is God worth it? And if you haven't listened to those sermons or you're still wrestling with those questions, I'd encourage you to go to our website or to our YouTube page and listen to those talks because uh, we're now applying the truth of that, the goodness, the worthiness of God to uh, make sense of life. Today, we're looking at one of life's greatest pursuits, pleasure. And in light of Jesus... We're making sense of pleasure that we might have a life of joy. I want you to see that good pleasures need a good God. And that pleasure becomes meaningless and empty without Him. 
Now, one of our good pleasures as Christians is that we don't have to attempt to understand this on our own, but we can ask God for help. So, if you feel comfortable, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, please gift us your spirit as we come to understand your truth and goodness and reveal to our hearts the things in our lives which you are preparing for our heavenly reality. Amen. The whole story of the Bible helps us understand lots in life, uh, and we're going to use it uh, use its story arc today to make sense of pleasure. The Bible shows us good pleasure, it shows us flawed pleasure, and it shows us a right and perfect pleasure. So, is pleasure good? It feels kind of silly to ask, but some Christians are very skeptical of pleasure. It's important to see that the Bible begins with goodness and pleasure sown into creation. When we think about pleasure, we often associate it with words such as enjoyment, comfort, happiness. Because it's when we feel these good emotions through blessings and gifts that we experience pleasure. Like a good movie or some good music or a nice, relaxing holiday. In the Genesis 1 narrative of creation, the concept of pleasure is implicitly woven into the fabric of God's design. According to the biblical account, God created the heavens and the earth, declaring each element of the universe good. This includes the various forms of life, from the flora and the fauna uh, to the pinnacle of creation, humanity. In verse 27, it is stated, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blesses them and gifts them every plant and animal on the earth. And as God looks on this... He says it was very good. The inherent goodness of creation and the fact that humans are made in the image of God suggests that pleasure, when pursued in harmony with God's intentions, is a natural and positive aspect of the human experience. Pleasure in its diverse forms becomes a reflection on the beauty and goodness of God's creation. It is a gift bestowed on humanity to enhance the human experience and foster a sense of gratitude and joy. God and all those who believe in him are often considered killjoys by modern media thinking they turn from what is good and demand nothing but rules and regulations. But in the beginning, when God had created everything and nothing was subject to judgment and decay, he made a creation in which his people can experience enjoyment, fulfillment, and satisfaction 
pleasure is a part of God's good creation. And our experience of pleasure expresses this. We savor good food. We laugh. We unwind on a nice, relaxing holiday. We dance or tap to good music. We love. There are many good things we experience in this life which we would happily describe as pleasurable. It is so wired into the needs of our heart that when we experience the thrill and withdrawal of pleasure, we sometimes take those desires too far, turning a good thing into a God thing. So what is it about pleasure that encourages us to do this? Why do we elevate these good things above God? Well, imagine being so rich and powerful that you could acquire every gift and experience of pleasure that you desired. It sounds like an unrealistic dream. But the author of Ecclesiastes is in that exact position. We read in verse 1, I said to myself, Go ahead, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it is madness. And about pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind the pull of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. One of the shows I enjoyed watching in my teen and adult years was the show Grand Designs. Can I get a show of hands? Has anyone seen it? Yeah, nice, nice, I like that. <laughs> for those who haven't seen it, uh, the host will meet an individual or a couple who have recently bought a plot of land or a rundown building uh, with the plans to make the most luxurious house. And at first you think, their plans sound incredible. A part of you is like, gee, I would love to live in a house like that. But then you hear how much money they plan to sink into it and your heart sinks. It feels like every couple of minutes, they tell the camera about something they underestimated or something that went wrong, and their plans to throw a couple of grand in to fix it. And by the end of the episode, they tell you their unexpected cost is in the millions. You see, I don't know if it's their British emotions or what, but as they show you around their finished house, they don't look overly happy. <laughs> as much as we might sit there and think, owning a house like this would make us happy. The faces on these people uh, at least make me question whether I would be happy in their position. You see, in our pursuit of pleasure, we look to those who have it all and think our lack of joy is because we don't have what they have. 
So I encourage you to fill in the blank of this sentence. I would be happier if I just had... Our passage in Ecclesiastes encourages us away from that. This book is written from the position of a skeptic, but not just any skeptic, one who has everything they could ever want or need. They tease the question that if all we have is today, just the physical world around us, what is the meaning of life? You see, when we can't find meaning in our lives, we turn to pleasure as a coping mechanism to simply enjoy the life we're living now. But that pleasure quickly becomes our meaning. We strive to earn enough money to be comfortable, to find someone who will love us, to live in that dream house. And our lives are spent in the hopes of one day reaching that goal. Almost all of us seek something of pleasure that we don't yet have. But there is a small amount of people who can say they have everything, every pleasure. And our author is in, in Ecclesiastes is one of those people. Verse 10 says, All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure. And what do they have to say about all that they've listed that they have in verse 4 to 9? Well, back in verse 1, he says, It turned out to be futile. In verse 2, what does this accomplish? Verse 11, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. A pursuit of the wind is a common word uh, phrase used throughout this book. And what they mean when they say that is that wind is something which quickly passes you by. You can't catch the wind and save it for tomorrow. For us who do not have everything that our heart desires, we are always looking to the things that we are pursuing, and we're finding a sense of, when we're finding a sense of worthlessness, we start to blame ourselves because we think that we're missing something. I haven't lost enough weight. I haven't gotten that dream house. I haven't traveled enough. But this person shows us that he has everything and is in the same struggle that we are. Our pursuit of pleasure is flawed because we misapply it to the center of our hearts. It becomes our reason for living. But physical pleasure is like the wind. If you rely on it, it won't satisfy you. So why isn't pleasure enough? If pleasure is a good gift from God, why is it fleeting in our hands? Why do we want more from it? Well, it's because our lives need meaning and a purpose. When we don't have a larger story of meaning, we have no ability to locate things like suffering and purpose 
And so we turn to the nearest pleasure. And when we try to find that meaning in our pleasures, it's often because our pleasures are not being enjoyed in relationship with the giver of that good gift. Through him, we discover the right and perfect pleasure our hearts most desire. 1 Timothy 4 says from verse 1, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. In 1 Timothy, the church was dealing with significant false teaching, particularly around marriage and food. It was telling people that if they treated marriage and food according to their teachings, they would be living godly lives. It's in this example that we hear of our flawed pleasure and the natural result for people. They depart from the faith and the things God has declared good, the things which promise the world but will ultimately fail them. For anyone who trusts in the empty promises of their pleasures rather than the good God, they and their pleasures will be left without their beauty and goodness. You see, we treat our pleasures in our lives in two ways. We either treat them as beautiful and good things from a good God, and which causes us to be thankful to Him, or we use them for our own benefit and turn them into empty tools. For example, uh, movies can either be beautiful things to watch or tools which we use to forget our lives when they get stressful. Alcohol can either be enjoyed with thankfulness among friends or abused to inebriate ourselves. 1 Timothy 4 continues saying, They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. The key here is finding pleasure in relationship with the gift giver, who is God. All good things God has given to us for our pleasure are beautiful to encourage us to be thankful to our good God and draw us closer to Him. Their flaws arise when they're abused by broken people, cut off from the good God and not received from him who gave them. So is the answer to this all just to be thankful to God and eat, drink, and be merry? Pleasure is more flawed than that, and true beauty is more captivating 
than we or our flawed hearts imagine. We all seek true joy, to enjoy pleasure and persevere well when life is all but pleasurable. But the key is, fi- is found in the beauty of the one who sanctifies. Jesus is the perfect gift given to humanity by a good God. And in Isaiah 53, it says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearances that we should desire him. But through Christ, Colossians 1 tells us, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. The root of true pleasure, satisfaction, and all that is good to be enjoyed is this. Jesus left the glories of heaven to die on a cross to make you holy and beautiful from the inside out. And he is working in you now if you are reconciled with God. Jesus stripped himself of the glory and beauty of heaven to enter into the ugliness of our world where pleasures were tools for us to achieve that kingdom without the king. And through his life, he showed us something greater to be desired, a greater pleasure that we can look forward to. Through the feasts he attended, he often spoke of a greater feast that we are welcomed into. When preparing this talk, I jokingly mentioned John 2 to Nat, uh, where Jesus turned water into wine, saying, Jesus knew how to have a good time. But Nat mentioned in that passage, after all the best wine people had to offer had been drunk, Jesus provided something better, causing one of the guests to say, you have saved the best until now pointing to a heavenly reality of our pleasures, one which Jesus is sanctifying us into, like water into wine. That the joys and pleasures we experience now will pale in comparison to the heavenly reality that awaits us. And finally, upon his death, Hebrews 12 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What Jesus is showing us is this. Everything created by God is good. Every joy, every pleasure he has gifted to us in this life is beautiful. But our hearts desire an object of beauty. When we grasp onto something beautiful, we tend to elevate it. In God's eyes, we are his object of beauty, and he desires nothing more than for us to make him our object of beauty. So our good God gifted us his son 
who had no worldly beauty for us to treat him like all other things, but who pointed us to the right and perfect pleasure of heaven. That was the joy set before him and the pleasure that will truly satisfy our hearts, a promise we can cling to today and which won't pass us by like the wind, an assured future of pleasurable beauty in the presence of a good God. So what do we do about this? Firstly, we should get to know Jesus, the perfect gift and pleasure of our hearts. Some of you would have heard about my journey of faith uh, and heard that when I first came to Sydney, my intention was to find where I belonged. I used experiences of joy as my compass. And there were many things that I found brought joy to my heart in the moment. But the following day would always leave me emptier than before, leaving a bigger hole in my heart. It was like I was chasing after the wind. As I encountered other Christians, I found a genuineness to their joy. And as I encountered and got to know Jesus through his people and through his gospel, this joy satisfied my heart and my longing for meaning. As I mentioned earlier, our lives need meaning and a purpose. When we don't have a larger story of meaning, we have no ability to locate things like our suffering and purpose, and so we turn to the nearest pleasure. And when we try to find that meaning in our pleasures, it's because our hearts, in our hearts, we long for a right and perfect pleasure. Our hearts need an object of beauty to make sense of everything. But whatever our hearts currently desires cannot easily be removed. They need to be displaced by a higher beauty. God has given us Jesus as the object of beauty our desires can long for, our right and perfect pleasure. Through Jesus, we can enter into an intimate relationship with God so that we can truly know him as the higher beauty. So turn to God's word and hear about his story, his life, his truth, his love. Turn to him in prayer and listen to the depths of his heart and speak to him from yours. Receive his Holy Spirit so that who Jesus is can be illuminated to you like a light placed on a beautiful artwork so that you might gaze on his beauty. Secondly, be inquisitive about your pleasures. Even for those of us who are Christians and have found God's beauty, we can just as easily forget it for a more tangible thing in front of us. As broken people, all of us are susceptible to addicting ourselves to the pleasures of this world. So finish this sentence. Life only has meaning if... 
Does life only have meaning if you have power? If you're loved? If you're recognized for your work? Or if you get to experience a certain kind of pleasure? If your answer to the question, to the sentence, life only has meaning if, isn't God, then there is something pleasurable in your life, which is your addiction. A pleasure which is acting as your master. The real thing your heart needs to get over your addictions is to look at Jesus and admire his beauty to acknowledge and turn from that addiction and to rejoice in what Jesus has done for you. Gaze upon the beauty of his grace, who willingly died to give you a future in heaven with God. Because our good pleasures need a good God, and they become meaningless and empty without him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to know you as a good, loving, and beautiful God, remind us of the joys and pleasures of the lives you have given us. Continue to deliver us from the allure and temptation of making our pleasures our reason for living. Help us to look to the grace of your Son so that we might delight in him and long for the pleasure of being in your presence for all eternity. In the name of your Son, Amen.